And hello and welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. And thank you so very much for tuning in one of our very special Thursday shows. And I say this every week, I love the Thursday shows. I love that we have in-studio audience. I love we always have a great guest and a one-hour serious in-depth conversation. I also periodically want to say thank you to Krista Branch, that fabulous lead in music, which you just heard. Uh, the singer is Krista Branch. Her husband wrote the music and the lyrics. And literally early on in political activity, I was at some function that was going to be speaking about my book. And she sang first. She sang that song. My husband's in the back of the room texting, you got to get that music. I mean, it's so perfect for this show because the message is, I am America. And that is a true story, as my dad used to say. It's a true story. You are America, the citizens are America, we are the sovereign, and we need to stand up for our country. So I want to thank Krista Branch. I periodically thank her, and she just said, just mention my name once in a while. So I do, that's Krista Branch. Okay, so we have Wade Miller joining us today. He's in studio, which I just love. Um, and he, you may recognize his name. He's been on the show uh, numerous times in the past. Um, and a very quick bio about him. Uh, Wade currently is a fellow and executive director for the Washington, D.C.-based Citizens for Renewing America great organization and got started um, after the Trump administration and the head or the president of that organization, Russ Vogt, was during the Trump term, Trump presidency, uh, he was a director of OMB. So he's a serious policy thinker and a broad-minded policy thinker. And this is a Washington, D.C.-based um, entity, Citizens for Renewing America. Uh, prior to that, our guest, Wade Miller, let me start with a really historic thing. So he was one of the Americans, young man, um, on 9-11, realized America had been attacked, did not like this, and signed up to join the military. So he went in the military, went off in the Marines. He has served our country abroad in, uh, in battle. I mean, he, he's, a, he's an actual fighter for America, which I just love about him. And really what he does today still is fighting for America in different ways. Uh, he has worked for the Ted Cruz, he actually Heritage Foundation, Heritage Action, which is a great portion of Heritage Foundation, encouraging people to be activists, helping them be effective activists. He worked for Ted Cruz. I can't remember. I'll ask him in a second what his job was, Ted Cruz. He's worked for the serious conservatives. He also worked for Congressman Chip Roy, uh, who is a member of Congress in the great state of Texas. He was his chief of staff. But in all those jobs, what Wade Miller learned, among many other things, he really understands how Washington works, what happens behind the scenes, how when ideas get floated, why they never make it anywhere. Um, and so he just understands a lot of the ins and outs, a serious substantive policy thinker, and just a great friend too. So please help me to welcome to the show, Wade Miller. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you. It's just great to see you. So starting with, what was your job with Ted Cruz again? Political director on the campaign. Okay, that's good. Senate huh? campaign. In the Senate campaign. All right, then. Okay, well, I want to start with, you know, there are a lot of things going on in Washington, to say the least. Um, and I want to uh, hit three big things today. And we do, at the end of this show, sometimes we give the audience a full 10 minutes, if I'm being good. They get to ask questions. Microphones pass around, so I try to watch the clock and make sure and leave them time. But three basic things I want to hit. One is about the holdouts in the United States Congress, the slim majority the GOP has. They got to pick the speaker. There was a, um, I thought, a fabulous demonstration of, of kind of courage. But anyway, a small segment held out and got some concessions out of uh, who now, Speaker McCarthy. Uh, and I want to know what you think about them, how much they changed things, did it really matter? I want to talk about the Department of Justice, um, who's kind of already telling the House Republican majority, don't be thinking we're going to cooperate with your investigations. Astonishing audacity. We'll talk about that. And the last one is in Texas, why after 42 counties have signed a petition asking Governor Abbott to please declare an invasion. What he has done is really not an invasion declaration. We'll talk about that. So let's just start. So in fact, your... Um, former boss and good friend, I know Chip Roy, was one of the leaders. So overall, was it a bad look, was it a bad thing for House members? We had a GOP majority, a slim majority, and they opposed Kevin McCarthy at first, wouldn't support his effort to become Speaker. Did we get ourselves off on a bad foot in, in this new Republican majority by doing that? No, I think it's actually one of the most significant reforms and changes in the House of Representatives in potentially 60 plus years. Uh, and I like to consider the holdouts were the 200 that were standing in the way of this deal. Uh, those are the holdouts 
but this deal was made, and I think that by and large, you don't hear a lot of complaining about the, this, the actual specifics of the deal. In fact, you see a lot of Republicans now embracing it and talking about how good of a deal this is. And, and you know, some of it's revisionist history, saying that this deal was already struck and they didn't need to do all this, which is just nonsense. I know for a fact that that's wrong. Uh, but there's large-scale uh, embracing of this. The, the ones you'll see some hesitancy from are the appropriators because they don't like that the, uh, the budgetary parts of this deal uh, will force spending cuts, especially on discretionary programs that are woke and weaponized. And so this was fundamentally, like I said, one of the biggest changes in, in how the House operates. And some of it's very technical, uh, but it all revolves around the leverage. And so, you know, a lot of people are like, well, yeah, you know, the Republican always, they just talk. Well, there's actual real leverage here to force the party to actually adhere to the deal. And of course, we can get into some of the various aspects and what those implications are. I'd love to. I, I texted myself actually the entire list so I can go through it. And I won't go through all of them. But one thing that has emerged already, the House Freedom Caucus, who are like my favorite people in Congress, they part of the deal struck with Kevin McCarthy to become speaker was he had to give a little more voice. So has that, I mean, and I saw, and I'd love to have you talk about I saw he put two House Freedom Caucus members on the Rules Committee, which you may think, well, that's a boring committee. Talk about why that, it's astoundingly important committee. Talk about that, what the committee does. Right, so the Rules Committee is the gateway to the House floor. If you wanna get legislation to the House floor, it has to go through the Rules Committee. There's very rare exceptions here. You can do a discharge petition, but that's not easy to do. It takes a lot of time to get that pushed through. But the day-to-day -day work of the House of Representatives, everything goes to the Rules Committee, and then the, the Rules Committee decides, is this bill gonna go to the floor for a vote? If so, is it gonna be debated? Is it gonna, are we gonna allow amendments? The way this has historically happened under both Republicans and Democrats is the Rules Committee, which is a committee that is basically under the thumb of the, the Speaker. The Speaker appoints the, the committee members, and therefore they report to him and, and, are, and or her and are uh, uh, loyal to the speaker that has put them there. So they basically do whatever the speaker wants. So when I talk about transformational change and how the House operates, this is the first time in my lifetime, I think, that we've had a rules committee that's truly independent, meaning that the rules committee, if they don't like what's going on, they can basically thwart the, the agenda of the speaker. And in some ways, whether the speaker will publicly acknowledge it or not, it gives the speaker an enormous amount of leverage to then go to Biden and, and to the Senate and negotiate uh, and, and, and adhere to the deal. And so Kevin McCarthy may say, I don't like this, I don't like this, but he also like deep down may love it. it like I can't read his mind. So that's a key component of why the Rules Committee is so important. And it's so it's, I think it's uh, Ralph Norman, Thomas Massey and Chip Roy. And these are three people who I think wake up every day thinking how can we destroy the establishment and the <laughs> uniparty. And so having them be the gatekeepers to legislation is, Amazing. I don't know that I ever thought that we would be in a position to get that. Like it was when we were working with the Freedom Caucus members for a couple of months before this all went down and preparing them for this and, and working with Chip and others to strategize on how to have this go through to fruition. This was one of those things which we were like, if we got this, we'd accept the deal. But we never thought that they would actually give us this. Uh, we thought that, that we'd have to get to a position where Kevin McCarthy would back away and, and step down because he knew he didn't have the path forward. And then we'd be able to get that deal from another uh, person. But the fact that Kevin McCarthy uh, uh, gave that deal, I think, uh, you know, to his credit, speaks volumes uh, about his willingness to adhere to it. And so far, I have every indication that he is serious about adhering to this deal and will honor it. But, uh, you know, trust but verify. And I always, I never underestimate the ability of the Republican Party in general to let themselves down, uh, to shoot themselves <laughs> in their own foot. So we really have to stay on task here to make sure it comes to fruition. But the, but the Rules Committee is part of the leverage. And in, in addition to the motion to vacate, that is a huge part of the leverage. And then the other part of this deal that is, and we can get into this, I know you got a lot of bullet points, but it's, if you read it on paper, it doesn't necessarily strike you as like all interconnected, and, and, but it is very methodical. So if you look at the aspects with oversight and committees, if you look at the budgetary aspects, and if you look at the leverage, it's all meant to layer together for one point. So for instance, if part of the budget deal is we have to stick to fiscal year 22 levels, and by the way, we have a woke and weaponized budget, our Center for Renewing America put one out that magically just happens to align with the budgetary numbers that were negotiated. That's odd how that happened. <laughs> uh, and so they've got a blueprint now on how to do this and the leverage through the Rules Committee and through the vacate to force the House to actually stand their ground on this. And it's 
has to be done, or if they don't stick to this, and they have to get to a path to balance. But also the uh, the oversight structure, and we can talk about the church committee here in a minute if you if you want to. That will part of the deal is the Holman rule, and remember the Holman rule. This is a very key part of the aspect uh, the deal that people may just overlook. It allows government to go in and zero out someone's salary or zero out the salaries of several people or, or, or zero out funding for a specific department within an agency. It's a very important tool of all this. So as oversight is uncovering all this woke and weaponized government, FBI agents that are abusing their power, DEA agents, ATF agents, Department of Education, DOJ, CIA, all of this collusion and abuse of power, and we actually can lay out and start sending out hundreds and if not thousands of subpoenas to all of these individuals, and we're using judiciary, the select subcommittee on woke and weaponized government, the China committee, all of these new committees that we're putting in place, over, regular oversight committee, intel uh, committee, we can actually start using the Holman rule in the budgeting process to zero out their salary. So when, when we, when like one of the reactions was, okay, great, more oversight. All Republicans do is talk. They talk, they talk, they, they go on Fox News, they say something flashy, it's shocking. We hear about it all over the news, it goes viral, and then nothing happens. Well, now we have a budgeting tool. Imagine if we had this power in 2020 with Dr. Fauci, and we oh. can immediately zero out his uh, salary well, that's a strong incentive to a huge part of the bureaucracy not to get on the bad side of us and not to abuse their power. And so we can start using that. And remember, they have to uh, budget at fiscal year 22 levels. Mm -hmm. They have to. It's part of the deal. If, if they start backing away from that, then all heck breaks loose. I mean, Chip Roy will go nuclear at that point. Uh, and so will all of the others. And they, Again, they, yeah. they are serious about this. Yeah. And, and by the way, I want to make an, I, I think this is important. Chip Roy's got two young kids. He actually hates being in D.C., and that's part of why uh, I'm a, such a big fan of Chip. He hates being there. Being in the Rules Committee means he has to be there now on Sundays instead of coming in on Tuesday mornings mm -hmm. or, or you know, sometimes Monday afternoons. It means more time away from his family. He actually does not want to do it. I talked to him on the phone when he said that this was a deal that was possibly on the table. I said, look, it would be awesome for America, but for you, I don't think that you should do it. And he's doing it. And, and look, I personally like want him to do it. I don't, for him, I don't want him to have to do it. He's doing it. He does not want to do this. He's doing it because he understands the importance of it. He understands that his background as a Hill staffer uniquely gives him the power to weaponize this for the good of the American people. And he has my respect for that forever. Oh, he absolutely did. That was a great summary. And on Chip Roy, I, I, I think he's stellar and often one, I think it's his legal background and his uh, dedication to the Constitution and his familiarity with the process. He's really able to make very effective arguments on the House floor in really quick time. I mean, he really, I mean, I'm often playing his clips on my show because he, he's so impressive about that. Uh, so. Uh, so I love a great summary to start with. And on the zeroing out, just a little nitpicky thing, on the zeroing out, so say they're going to zero out, you know, this FBI agent doesn't get a salary, that goes into a bill, they write it into a bill, but that if the Senate won't agree, isn't that a sticking point? Can the Senate, uh, correct? I mean, you're still in a battle with the Senate. So part of the deal is single subject, so we can't do omnibuses. Yeah. We have to do single subject legislating on appropriations. So we're going to do each individual appropriations bill and send them over to the Senate. And they're going to be at fiscal year 22 levels. And, the fis and, and part of that is, well, you're not going to massively reduce spending in the, in the uh, DOD. So you're going to go after all the woke and weaponized spending in non-defense discretionary. It has nothing to do with Social Security, nothing to do with Medicare. We're talking about non-defense discretionary, massive cuts, $150 billion-ish in cuts to what the, how the left is funding the deep state and all the woke and weaponized activity there. That bill goes over to the Senate. They can posture. Biden can say it's a non-starter. The Senate can say it's a non-starter. But at a certain point, the government stops getting funding. And do you think that I care at all that the Department of Energy and the ATF and the you know Department of <laughs> Education aren't getting or the IRS aren't getting paid? I don't. I want them to go away. And so we're in a really strong position there. We're like, look, if the if the left starts saying, well, the troops aren't getting funded, well, you've got an appropriations bill that funds the military and all of the troop salaries. It's right there, Ling. If you really care about this issue, you will vote for this. So we have a lot of leverage to play, play hardball with the left. We're not going to have allies in, a, you know, Mitch McConnell. We're not going to have allies in, like, the, the you know, the 18 who voted for the, but we will have, you know, the Ted Cruz's, the Mike Lee's, and that crowd. They will be on our side in this and, and do everything they can on the Senate side to make this difficult. But again, it's not like in years past where, okay, we're up against, you know, the Senate and the, and the president, and eventually we're going to cave. Like, they... 
They don't have the op option to cave. The deal is fiscal 22 year budgeting. If we back out on that or the House Republican establishment finds a way to take an off ramp, vacate motions is on the table. The rules committee can block any bills that the Senate sends back over their counter offers. Uh, so we have a lot of leverage there and Chip Roy is 100% adamant on this. If the Senate decides they don't want this and they try to send stuff back over, he's going to use the rules committee to punt it into the sun. It's not gonna happen. So uh, we've got, for the first time in my life, real leverage here to fight. It's not a done deal. It is going to be a hard battle and, it's, and we're gonna have to fight and we're gonna have to hold people accountable on this. But it is the first time I've been cautiously optimistic that we've got a real opportunity here. I love all of that. And actually, this is an early testing time. You know, all these concessions happen. So Kevin McCarthy's speaker, you and I talked before we started today, there was a brief little interaction with the media where they were complaining to him uh, that he had decided that two individuals, Swalwell um, and um, Schiff, I often call him Schiffless, Adam Schiff, but could not be on, on the House Intelligence Committee because specifically of their behavior. And this reporter was saying, well, you know, Speaker McCarthy, their voters voted for them. You can't not put them on. And I, I played the clip yesterday in the show. He was, that was the strongest I've ever heard him just saying, this is not about party. This is the conduct they've engaged in. There was a new fire in him I haven't seen before. And I think this is a real testing time as to the agreements that made to get to that position. How strongly will he hold to them? And one of the quick things I'm gonna ask your reaction to, I've often had the feeling that many people in Congress, they kind of agree with the things the House Freedom Caucus says they stand for, but they're not politically palatable in Washington and you don't get to go to the cocktail parties, you're not quite as, if you say those things, and it's almost like the House Freedom Caucus being given more power kind of lets other members go along with their agenda without having to bravely put their own names on it. Well, we're trying to do a paradigm shift there where like the focus is no longer like on budgeting, the, the big white whale with Republicans and Paul Ryan, et cetera, has been, we've got to reform entitlements. Well, we could balance the budget by reforming Social Security and Medicare in 10 years. That's a, that's a numbers game. It's easily done through the math. The problem is, is that one, you're going to take a po huge political hit by doing yeah. that. People are going to say you're taking away people's retirement, you're taking away people's health care. Not to say those programs don't need reforms, they do. Uh, but that's not the path forward because we could win those battles balance the budget, and in 10 years, cultural Marxism will have captured every institution in America. The deep state will be even more powerful. They will be weaponizing every single, the collusion of media, big tech, and corporate America will be even bigger than ever before, and government, by the way, and FBI and CIA. <laughs> and that collusion and that racket will be even stronger. We will lose America. And so the point we're trying to make to them, and like Russ has talked to Senate Steering, and he's talked to HFC, and he's talked to a lot of different groups, RSC, I mean, he's talking to every group he can, that we have to go after woke and weaponized government. We have to defund the institutions that are attacking us. And that will give us the footing to then, you know, balance the budget. It's possible. You don't have to touch Social Security and Medicare benefits to get to a balanced budget. And we show them through our 100-page budget how you do that mathematically and what you, you can do. Like, we're funding gay pride parades in Prague. Like, what, regardless of the your American opinion on that. The government is funding a gay pride parade yeah. in like and, and we're f like funding Bob Dylan statues in like Mozambique or some country. It's like, <laughs> why? Like what? Like what? What? Like no. Like regardless of your views on Bob Dylan or, or homosexuality, like that's not a core function of the federal government to be doing that. But even domestically, we all know how the the uh, the grant making process is going to all of these leftist organizations mm -hmm. who are pushing a radical Marxist agenda, and the federal government, your tax dollars are being used to fund the very attack on our way of life. And it's happening every day all over America, and it's got to stop. And so we're trying to push that paradigm shift through. I love that. And, you know, it really is uh, very consequential that your organization, uh, Citizens for Renewing America, is headed up by Russ Vogt, who previously headed up the Office of Management and Budget So for, under President Trump. So he actually knows how the budgeting process works. I mean, that information and knowledge and perspective he gained, it has to be enormously consequential for his ability to have these kind of conversations now. I, everything about do this whole package you put together. He's one of the few people that can go have conversations with members of Congress and disabuse them of this notion that you have, the only way you can balance the budget is by going after Social Security and Medicare benefits. You, you do not have to do that. That is a mathematical fact. We can do it this other way around. And not only can we balance the budget, but we can actually attack the deep state and the woke and weaponized government as we're doing it. Those are two things that were, those are not two different battles. That is the same battle. We have to defund tyranny and you can do it. And, and so we have to hope 
the Republicans have the resolve to actually do it now. The other thing I want to mention about your organization before we turn to talking about the DOJ thinks they're going to defy the Republican majority, but your organization has been from the very start, you used the expression a moment ago, cultural Marxism. I love, I've tried to talk about that in my show, I, I will continue to, but your organization doesn't just focus on dollars and cents, which are hugely important uh, to the budget, but it's a broader perspective about America, it's restoring, and, and I don't, I didn't print out your, um, you know, your talking, your, your description of yourself, you know, your, um, of the organization, but you really expand your application policy ideas to things about American culture, society, freedom of religion, and, and the place of religion in society. It's a, it's a very broad perspective on what makes America, America, and I really, I, I commend that greatly. And we have to get Republicans more comfortable with understanding that that is the fight. It's not regulations, although that's part of how regulations are used, is to usher in the cultural Marxism. It's not tax rates. It's not uh, uh, how much money we are or not spending. Those are just tools that are being used to push. It's the cultural Marxist agenda. That is what you have to go after. And it has been work, uh, admittedly, to get Republican elected officials to understand that. We're making a lot of progress. I mean, we, when Russ and I first sat down in 2020 with members of Congress to explain to them what critical race theory is, you could see they took the meeting because it's Russ vote. And they, so they gave, you know, they're listening at least. And when you're done, you, you know, you kind of can sense, oh, they don't quite get it. But over months, we finally broke through and now everyone sees it. Now everyone, most Republicans, at, at least at the federal level, understand that it is actually a bad thing and they understand how to attack it. But we need more of that. We need that in the state legislatures. I mean, Texas does not have a critical race theory ban. Despite what a lot of people think, they do not have one. Uh, I can go on any computer system in any public school in Texas, go through the materials that are now on the portals. We didn't have portals when I was in grade school, so it took me some time to get used to that. But all of the materials on there, I can find tons of critical race theory, critical theory, gender theory. It's all in there, social emotional learning. It's all in there. So we have no actual functional critical race theory ban in Texas, and I don't see anyone. I don't see the governor. I don't see the uh, education commissioner. I don't see the school board, although I think the school board's getting ready to potentially move in the right direction on some of this. I don't see them doing anything yet, and they need to. But this is, that's just one facet of it. And that's happening K through 12, it's happening in colleges, it's happening in corporate American HR departments, it's happening in government, it ha it's happening in churches, it's happening in every uh, institution in our culture. That is the fight for America right there. It's not the accounting and gimmicks and, and, and wonky budget stuff, it is, that. That's what we have to attack and go after. And if we do not, we will lose. You know, it's interesting. Two quick things. One is I noticed that many of you probably know Hillsdale has these courses all the time. For, for people who aren't students here, you can go online and take them and, and get materials emailed to you. And they really, recently they've been, uh, they're, I think, brilliant. And the things they're pointing out, one of, the, is, one of them is just kind of like, what happened to America? What, what, and, what, and the answer, I think, in part, is what you're describing. Uh, cultural Marxism happened to America and the takeover of our institutions and the shifting of public thought. And so people who used to say, well, yeah, I don't really want critical race theory taught in my kid's school, they are branded and they are criticized and they're ostracized. And it becomes easier. It's one of the tools of cultural Marxism, mockery and ridicule. And so it's easier for Republican politicians to say, I talk about taxes. I talk about low regulation, a friendly regulatory environment. I talk about military. These are safe topics, but these topics you're describing, they are, they go to whether the country continues to exist as the, as the republic was intended to be. I think it's brilliant. The left has become a party, a cultural party, and the right has for too long been an economic party. And we can win all of those debates and a debate stage, but they have been hard at work at winning over a culture and, and overtaking it. And until we reverse that course, there's no path forward to win unless we, one, recognize it, and then two, attack it wholeheartedly without any, they're gonna call us race, and that's like Russ says this. He told me this when he hired me. He's like, what we're getting ready to do, they will call you a racist, they will call you a homophobe, they will call you a bigot, they will call you whatever, a sexist. You, you have to embrace that and understand, one, none of that's true, uh, but two, that we have to just be unafraid of that and just go through it and then we will create a lane for politicians to come in behind us once they see us dismantle those arguments and you see a lot of that work going on with like chris rufo uh, oh. uh michael young they're all working hard at d uh, destroying some of those arguments that are being leveled at us whenever we try to engage in the culture battle
I just love that. We could do the whole show on this, but I want to switch to the next thing. So uh, you mentioned when you started, and I, I've been talking about too, how uh, as this con new Congress is now in place, there is a, there's a committee that's looking into the weaponization of the federal government, and or I always say of the, uh, by the left of the federal government against the people, and this weaponization of government was a trendy term among conservatives, but again, among many things being Americans starting to see the way things really are, yeah, the government seems weaponized against us. So there, Jim Jordan's gonna head up a committee, and he early on, I think the first, I don't, uh, the first thing he asked uh, the Department of Justice for was documents related to the Biden documents, the documents found that were classified and found in Biden, Biden's University of Penn Center, uh, Biden Center in Washington, in the House, and, and his home in Delaware. And they got a really smug, lengthy letter back from the DOJ essentially saying, oh, of course we're going to cooperate. We all respect the systems of government. I read little clips of it yesterday, but the gist of it was, you know, we're not giving you anything. I mean, that, that was what I took away. We're not giving you anything you're asking for. So early on, this congressional investigation into Biden and the documents, and, and they have all sorts of reasons they can say they can't cooperate right now, but it's, it's, a, it's a butting of heads between the um, legislative branch, Congress, and the executive branch, the DOJ, saying, uh, you know, you're, you're stepping over in our lane and we're not going to cooperate. So how do you see that playing out? Do you think that the House is ever going to get one thing out of them? And, and how do they make it happen? How do they force the DOJ's hand? Right. So only half joking here, but their initial response should be cool story, uh, Holman rule. That's it. They should just send that back to them and say, okay, if you don't want to play ball with us, then I hope none of you uh, are uh, allergic to not getting a salary. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because if you don't want to play ball, if you don't want to have legitimate oversight conducted on the executive branch, which is, is a constitutional power of the, of the uh, Article II branch, then fine, we can play this game and we will uh, hold you accountable for it. And then you better hope that political winds don't shift because as soon as we have the executive branch, every single person, political or non-political, that's in that agency that had anything to do with this, we're going to not only investigate the heck out of you, subpoena every aspect of your life, uh, but we're going to uh, uh, eventually get rid of you. You're going to be fired or dismissed or whatever. And, and that signal needs to be sent uh, to the entire deep state. So one of the things that Tr Donald Trump tried to do uh, towards the very end of his uh, first term was uh, to implement Schedule F, which would mm -hmm. change the employment scheduling of all of the bureaucracy from certain ways to, to basically at-will employment, which would- Yeah, elaborate on that, Schedule F. I, yeah, so yeah. all federal government employees have a schedule that kind of determines like the parameters of their hiring. And most of them have all sorts of protections. Uh, you know, you have to go through these lengthy processes to get rid of them if you can get rid of them at all. Uh, schedule F just is a new schedule and it changes it all to at-will and that's it. And so you don't need any reason at all. So that, like, the left hates this. They're trying to proactively put into law that the next president cannot do this because they understand the ramifications of this. But back to the, so that's a huge power, and they need to remember that because power does shift. And we will not forget everyone who played games and tried to hide all the people and, and protect all the people who are weaponizing and abusing their power. Uh, uh, we will find them and we'll find out who they are and they will pay, they will pay a price uh, uh, one way or the other, legal, all legal, of course. <clears throat> um, but so the DOJ is going to have to play. And by the way, another thing we could do is withhold funding for the entire agency. Just do not fund the DOJ. If they do not want to play ball with oversight, we uh, send over a, an appropriations bill that zeroes out Department of Justice funding. You know, or, or if they want to do it you know, uh, more politically, they can leave in the funding for the division that uh, investigates child pornography, you know, but all of the heads, all of the big offices that are responsible for this, that's all zeroed out funding. Zeroed out. For our radio listeners, you're about to go off on a break, 30 minutes past the hour, so three minute break. Do not go away. We'll be right here talking with our wonderful guest, a Wade Miller. Come back after the break to America Can We Talk. You can hear the entire interview later at our website, americacanwetalk.org. You can also watch and listen to the show live at americacanwetalk.org, but don't go away. Okay, so back to, um, you know, you, it's funny, you're so familiar with the details of how things work in Washington. I always cling on to the Congress said, you know, the Constitution says that the House has the power of the purse. And I thought on many of these occasions, it probably seems radical to say, we're just going to defund you if you don't cooperate. But I feel like things are so far um, off track in Washington that the Uniparty, the deep state is in control. They're not listening to the people. 
even elected officials who come back to their constituents and say, oh yeah, I stand for X, Y, Z, they, they never fight for it. And I, I have hoped this new Congress might consider some serious efforts toward uh, defunding. And, and, and this is, to me, one great weapon they have in their arsenal. And if it gets into a shutdown scenario, those are historically difficult fights to engage in politically. But remember, the entire oversight structure that we're going to have in place here is meant to reinforce that. So they're going to be coming out with stuff and dripping it out in every one of these agencies that is showing abuse of power in the federal level. And that's going to make the American people are going to be seeing this. And so when they're seeing all of these agencies abusing their power and now all of a sudden we have a spending bill that defunds or is, is zeroing out, uh, it's going to the Democrats are going to be on difficult ground to argue like they historically do, that we can't stop people from getting their paychecks in the federal government. Well, when the federal government is largely abusing their power and the Democrat Party is carrying water for them and protecting them, then uh, you know this is the consequence. Uh, eventually that has to stop and we're going to hold them accountable. And it may not be most FBI agents, but it's a lot of them. And I, I'm not going to get into the details here. We don't have time. But some of the things I am hearing from some of the whistleblowers it's not even like abuse of power. It's just a moral decay. There's all sorts of like yeah. sexual scandals and it's just really bad stuff. We need a, a new moral leadership within the, the, the structure of these agencies that will not only get them back on the right track, but start hiring the right people, the right professionals who will bring a professional aura to this so that people can actually start trusting them again. I didn't think I'd live long enough where a majority of people would be in a position to where they just don't believe experts in this country anymore. And we're there, you know. Uh, they don't uh, don't believe uh, the Department of Justice, the FBI, the IRS, yeah. the CIA, the NSA, DOD. There's a list of agencies where people just don't have faith in their integrity and their commitment to America as founded as a constitutional republic with rights, all the things we're supposed to be. People feel like that that monolith behemoth in Washington is just kind of really running the country, no accountability. They would, I think. They, American people would love to see a Congress stepping up and saying, you're going to change your behavior and you're going to answer questions or there really be consequences. One thing Republicans always suffer from, and it's unfortunate, is, and we mentioned periodically, but the media is forever in a day on the side of the left, mm -hmm. on the side of the uniparty, the deep state. And so part of what I uh, hope... Saw this in the speaker fight, by the way. Almost every news agency was wrong about the analysis of what was going on there. Yes, not only the analysis, but they were talking about the idea that, you know, uh, Republicans are really starting off. That's why I kicked off with that question. Republicans are really hurting themselves. They're showing disunity. They're showing America they can't lead. And honestly, the people paying attention, the more you understand, the more you're cheering it on and saying, this is great. Someone's standing up. And I love seeing how much the speaker so far appears to be listening. Mm -hmm. I, I love it. Love it. Okay. Um, on this, uh, there was a committee formed about China, too. And I've been involved um, recently in some meetings related to uh, the way in which China has infiltrated America's government. Simply mind-blowing. And the way China is all of its uh, entities, it's the businesses that are on our, on our stock exchanges here don't follow the same rules that American companies have to follow. So I think there is, that may be one area where there's not um, understanding yet about the depth of penetration of China and Washington, but I think as more is put out about it and more is shared, uh, people will realize, shoot, this is like the, you know, this is kind of the, it's more than the camel's nose in the tent. This is like an insidious infiltration. So, anyway, I'm, I, oh, I don't want to quick thing I want to mention, you can react to it. So I'm, I think you may have seen um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, voted against the um, formation of that committee, the China committee. Did you see her reasonings? I didn't see her specific reason. Okay. Uh, one was because it will increase anti-Asian um, bigotry in America. And second, it might imply that we're headed toward a Cold War with China. As though she's utterly unaware what China's already doing to us. I, thought, I, I didn't yeah. tell you I was going to go in this direction, so I don't know if you have any comments about that. I thought it was amazingly daft. I mean, if she doesn't think that China is already at, effectively at war with us, and I like, I don't know where she's going every day when she walks into the building. Is she going to the bathroom and just sitting in there all day and not listening to anything else that's being talked about? Because it's, it's clear. I mean, just the intelligence briefings that they get alone, yes. they are brief, well briefed on what China is doing to the United States every day in every aspect. Just the, the, the amount of espionage, IP theft, uh, that amount of hacking that is, uh, you know, from... Uh, not state-sponsored, but we all know that these uh, hacks from, are absolutely coming from the Chinese government as well. Uh, they're all endorsed, and they're doing nothing to crack down on it. On every front, 
They're, they are uh, uh, weaponizing their economy and their system against the United States of America. And frankly, there's a lot of U.S. politicians and industry leaders uh, who are complicit, I think, in a lot of ways of empowering the Chinese to be able to do this. I mean, you see this in the NBA. You see this in like companies like Nike who are uh, you know, ignoring some of the things. By the way, they're attacking us and our way of life in the, in the United States, but then doing everything they can to kowtow and protect uh, you know, the Chinese interests. And it's, it's super frustrating to see. It's super frustrating it to see corporate America act like that. Yeah, there's that book that came, was written by two Chinese generals, came out in 1998, called Unrestricted Warfare. Mm -hmm. And it was wonderful because we got a hold of it. It's in English. You can buy it off of Amazon. And it basically says, here's how we're going to take down America. Mm -hmm. These are senior Chinese generals in the CCP explaining how they take down America. Point, 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 already has happened. And I just, I, I just thought it was, uh, I don't mean to pick on AOC because I think there were 68 Democrats who voted against it. But the concept, you are worried that China might perceive that we're starting, trying to start a Cold War mm -hmm. when they're in the process of trying to take, they, they have said they want to be the single world superpower. And, and anyway, I was thrilled to see the committee was formed. I hope they go gangbusters looking at what China's doing and how you expose it. I mean, you can ask Eric Swalwell, like about hiring a Chinese spy and, and you yeah. know, having her for a girlfriend, but that's, we're not going to go there. Okay, last topic I had in my list um, relates to uh, the great state of Texas, which um, where we are today and um, where we live, or we, I live, and there has been an, uh, much attention drawn to the border, much attention drawn to how we have an un insecure border and many people complain about Washington and they're pushing uh, the Biden administration and complaining about the DHS not enforcing the border. And yet here in Texas, our governor would say that he, of course, cares about enforcing the border, but we have a, a completely porous border in Texas, and there is a capacity, and you've been, we, I think you were on Skype on my show talking about this at one point, but talking about the, what, dispo, what weapons Governor Abbott has at his disposal to actually make an effective declaration related to the Texas uh, border with Mexico. And can you just, like, in bullet point, go through what he could do and what difference it would make if he made the kind of order people want him to make. Sure. So uh, it's important to understand that, you know, under immigration law, the silo of immigration law, anything that the state tries to do, what the courts will say is Arizona v. U.S. applies here and you can't do this. The courts have already just, uh, weighed in. So what the Trump administration did, by the way, even though they're the federal government, not a state, but uh, there's so many co other court cases that prevent even the federal government from securing the border effectively. And so what the Trump administration is, they got uh, smart and they went outside of that silo, the immigration law silo and all the statutes that apply here. States can't operate in here because of Arizona v. US. The federal government can't really operate here because of other TP, TVPRA and the Flores settlement. Those things prevent them from, so they went over to public health authorities and they did Title 42. So now all of a sudden they're using public health authorities, which none of these court cases in the immigration silo apply to. Uh, FYI, Texas, is, there's going to be a bill introduced, and I think it was introduced on Monday of last week, that is going to do a Texas-style uh, Title 42. It's going to be Texas health authorities to, to try to get out of the Arizona v. U.S. paradigm here. And, then, and that was, by the way, we worked with them on that. Uh, Ken Cuccinelli worked with Brian Harrison to get that bill introduced here in Texas. And then there's the invasion stuff. So this is a constitutional silo outside of immigration. So can I show you? The U.S. versus Arizona Supreme Court case, it basically said immigration is a federal government's job, not the state's, period, full stop. Right. Okay. And a lot of governors have been using that as an excuse why they can't do anything. Yep. So our task was, and by the way, this whole invasion argument, we developed it. We've had a pretty good year. Our budget is kind of under consideration. The invasion stuff is in the news all the time. Uh, uh, you know, we had a huge impact on CRT. Our bill was used for such a small organization. Russ has done an extraordinary amount of work on this. Uh, it's actually kind of impressive to see how much success we've had. But the invasion declaration argument is something that we devised because we were sitting around and saying it's unacceptable that the border isn't secured and now Biden's in, in office. What can we do to upset that paradigm? And we, sat, we talked for a long time, talked about interposition, nullification, and we settled in on the invasion clause. It's Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3. It's a power granted to a state governor to, uh, to basically say that there is, Article 4, Section 4 is being... Uh, not adhered to, it's being violated, the president's failing to do his job or her job or whatever, you, whoever the president is. And so the governor's going to declare this invasion. Now, the, the point of that is to get out of this immigration silo so that we now have a constitutional authority to go secure the border and repel the invasion, whatever that may be constituted as. And it's important to remember, 
James Madison thought that this, the invasion clause was uh, sufficient to uh, combat for states to unilaterally combat smugglers that were coming in from the seas, the international seas, and, or otherwise. Uh, and then uh, Sam Houston, some of you may be familiar with that name here in Texas, but Sam Houston thought it was an appropriate power to use against Mexican bandits who were coming across the border. And I would say cartels and their entire human uh, trafficking network is much more than just smuggling, and it's much more than just being a bandit. I mean, it's way worse. And so this power applies. And so what are we asserting can be done then? We are asserting, uh, and we're very confident in this position, that under this constitutional authority, a governor is empowered to remove and expel illegal border crossers back into Mexico. And so under Operation Lone Star currently, uh, what the gov Governor Abbott is doing is he's talking tough and all this flowery language and it looks great on paper, unless you really understand what he's actually saying. And he's saying, we're gonna stop them and we're gonna take them to the border. What he means by that is he's taking them to a port of entry and dropping them off with federal authorities. Federal authorities are processing them and then releasing them into the interior of the United States. It's not actually doing anything. It's in fact, I would argue that, that other than maybe a few more drug interdictions of fentanyl, the state of Texas might have been in a better place altogether if they just didn't institute uh, uh, Operation Lone Star at all because it would have saved tens of millions of dollars for the state of Texas and it, nothing would have effectively changed. And, and, and not only that, but we've got National Guard units that are burnt out, uh, they're going through divorces because they're spending so much time on the border and they're not being given any authority. So our, our, our contention is, is that if you declare an invasion, you then give state agents the authority to remove them back into Mexico almost immediately. And it's enforced just like Title 42. We're not talking about necessarily uh, you know, open warfare, although there would be rules of engagement to combat cartels if they were to uh, you know, shoot at them. Standing rules of engagement apply. But when we say repel the invasion, we're saying essentially Title 42. You stop illegal border crossers, process them, fingerprint them, get their you know, bio, bio information, uh, do a quick health and wellness check, give them a little bit of food and water, take them back across into Mexico, right across the river or, where, or whatever bridge you're right next to, take them into Mexico, drop them off. Now, Abbott's response to this was for the longest time that he couldn't do this. And then he finally did invoke the invasion clauses and declare an invasion, but he did nothing that he, he provided no authorities to state agents that would have mattered in this case. So it was just Operation Lone Star that he renamed an invasion declaration. And that's really kind of manipulative of Governor Abbott to do that. Uh, uh, and so we are asking him to do this. Now, he just did an interview recently. He's like, well, they'll just come right back across the border a mile down the road. And my response would be, then go get them and put them right back across. I guarantee you, if you repeat this 30 times in a row, they will eventually stop. And not only that, the word will get out and a lot of people that are coming north will stop coming north. This is the only way you can do it. Now, in Governor Abbott's defense, I think if he were to make this argument, and I haven't heard it from him, it would be legitimate, he would say, I don't have enough personnel that are actually trained for this job. I think that's a legitimate argument. Doesn't mean he shouldn't do it. There's really bad sections of the border that we could concentrate on that alone would do a lot of work. And if, if it shifts, we shift. Uh, and, and, but in the meantime, I think uh, Matt Schaefer is introducing a border core bill. The Texas uh, Department of, of the Military or DPS, there needs to be an agency that is solely dedicated to this. Agents are trained for this. And also, we need to lean on other state governors. Other state governors need to say, if you do this, if you declare an invasion and you empower agents to take back into Mexico illegal border crossers, we will send resources and personnel uh, under the understanding that you will deputize them to help. So it wouldn't just be Texas if this were the case. If, if Abbott were to actually do this, we would be lobbying every single Republican state in the union to go help him. And I actually have talked to quite a few state legislatures. They're interested in doing this. And there's some governors who are interested in doing this. In fact, DeSantis has said that he'd be interested in doing this. But the problem is, is they can't do anything right now because even if they sent them here and even if Abbott uh, deputized them, they would have no authority to do anything that would actually change uh, the dynamic and secure the border. What does um, Governor Abbott have to do? He's, as you say, he's called it, he's saying it's an invasion, but he hasn't. I mean, the next step is he has to appoint the agencies, he has to deputize certain people, he has to get them funded, is it, I mean, what is it he needs to do and needs to be pushed to do to make it real? He could take his existing executive order and change the word to, to into Mexico, or to, uh, to the border, to into Mexico, or across the border. If he would just change that one sentence, that alone is the whole ballgame. Now, state agents are actually empowered to effectively secure the border. Because under the current 
uh, system, what they do is they gather, those that they gather, they take two federal agents. They would no longer have to do that. Uh, they could take them across. Now, another argument that would be made, and I think it's erroneous, is that uh, the DOJ would arrest under uh, Title 242 or 241, which would be some sort of civil rights violation. We had Jeffrey Clark do a legal analysis of that claim. He's the former Deputy Assistant Attorney General. Assistant Attorney General. I think it's Assistant Attorney General. Anyways, he was the one who almost replaced Barr. Uh, he was the one who was going to become the Attorney General had uh, Donald Trump decided to replace Barr. Uh, so he obviously is, knows a little bit about the law. He did a thorough review of this, did a whole memo under Center for Renewing America, effectively saying that this is not legally valid. The DOJ could try this. It will never succeed in court. So there's no real argument against Abbott doing this. Uh, he just won't do it. And I, he either doesn't understand why, because his people around him aren't informing him, or he just disagrees with us on, on actually the need to secure the border. I'd like to think it's not the latter. I'd like to think it's the former. I would love to sit down with him and have Ken Cuccinelli and, and Jeff Clark walk him through what he needs to do this and then hear all of his concerns. You know, he, one thing he did that I actually agreed with was he started instituting vehicle checkpoints. Uh, that actually caused a lot of problem for the cartels because the Mexican governors do not want trade with the United States to stop. But he stopped doing that after like three or four days. And so unless you continue to do that, uh, you don't only have to do that. If you actually just uh, gave the uh, agency the authority that they needed, that would be enough. You, but you could also do that. There's things that Governor Abbott has done that, that are helpful, but he has not been doing them consistently. And it's just to the point where, like, wh what, why? Like, what is going on? There's no logical explanation why he won't do this. And, I, and you know, I, I would like to see Ken Paxton publicly affirm this. The Attorney General of Arizona, Mark Burnovich, already has. He wrote a whole legal opinion <coughs> affirming that this is a power governor's had and you can do this. Uh, Carrie Lake campaigned on this. Don Huffines campaigned on this. Yeah. Alan yeah. West campaigned on this. Uh, uh, we've had uh, Ron DeSantis has weighed in and, and urged Governor Abbott to do more. Uh, we can do more. Governor Abbott just will not do more. Uh, he just wants to blame President Biden. And my argument to Governor Abbott would be like, look, I don't know what your ambitions down the road are, but if you can't secure the borders of Texas, no one's going to be able to trust you to secure the borders of the United States. So if those are your intentions down the road, I would disabuse yourself of that thought until you can get this issue right. Yeah, on the, what um, Governor Abbott could do, if he were to change the two to N2, and so he's uh, authorizing that, does he have to designate, does he have to take the next step, A step of saying, and these agencies are the ones authorized to do it? It's obvious who's authorized to do this if he were to make that change. Is uh, that right? It would behoove him to be very specific on who's he authorizing. Are, can sheriffs do this? Does this have to be DPS? Uh, uh, but I think the assumption would be that uh, state agents, uh, if that were just the plain language, if that would apply at least to DPS. I do think he should empower sheriffs, and I do think that uh, if he were to do that, sheriffs could be a, a really solid. I think it's a mistake to use National Guard for this directly. This is uh, something that you need trained agents for. Like, I was a Marine. This is not something I'm trained for. Neither is the National Guard. Uh, you need a dedicated agency of, of people who are uh, understand this from a law enforcement perspective and can then uh, uh, execute that mission in, in that way. And Matt Schaefer's bill is to creating a new agency that would be new people. Is that it? Well, it's not uh, submitted yet, but my understanding is that it's going to be a, 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 in that uh, rough realm of, 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 of doing that. Yes. Well, speaking of Governor Abbott's uh, political ambitions, it's obviously no secret in Texas. A lot of people where he's contemplating running for president at some point. I don't know when, but 24 or 28. And it's a really interesting um, dynamic. It's like the politics of border security. I think there are people who would be thrilled if a bill went through it said we have a new uh, agency of border enforcement of texas and it is empowered by governor abbott under this order and they can take people back into mexico and we began enforcing it i think you would have tremendous you'd support. be a national hero right you'd, you'd be, be a, a national, national hero. hero the politics of this are very simple and his ex his administrative excuses for not doing it don't add up so i don't know what to make of it well i i feel concerned because i know that he his polling is often polling all citizens, not polling his, so he, he's a, he's the, I have been told by people, he is the uh, biggest pollster you can ever imagine, polls every question all the time. So he may be concerned that the more moderate voter, whether, whether they call themselves R or D, uh, wouldn't like such a harsh treatment. And I just think it's a misreading. I, I just think yes. Americans are sick of it. Also the concept, if you can get DeSantis and Republican governors, uh, at least in the South, to send troops, I mean, we would be, it would help the presidential election, whoever ran. It'd be like, gosh, someone's finally standing up. I truly think well, that. Poll-driven Republican Party politics is 
the worst. So the left looks at it this way. They look at polls and say, this is a 30% issue for us. We have to get this to 70%. We're going to go do this. We're going to wage it. We're going to actually engage in the fight. We're going to use that opportunity to educate the public on why we're doing this, and we're going to sell our vision. Republicans look at a poll, and it's like 55% in our favor, and they're like, well, we're not going to even touch it until it's in the 70s or 80s. Uh, it's not in the top 10. We're going to go work uh, clean drinking water polls at 90%. Let's focus on that like, is it because it's a 90% issue. Meanwhile, no one's going to go knock on doors because clean drink water because, well, at least here is relatively clean. So it's like, what's the point? It's like everyone already agrees with that. No one's like animated by that issue. I agree. Uh, you know, you're, you have a wealth of knowledge about Washington. I could go in lots of directions about this invasion. I, I, I think there is some element of people, even on the right, who say, you know, we really, even though it's a little bit too much right now, we don't really like strict enforcement of the border and strict enforcement of immigration, you know, chamber of commerce kind of thinking. We want plenty of workers and, and low-income workers or people who accept a low wage. Uh, and all of that, I think, I, I think maybe you get into... Austin or Washington, and you just get surrounded by advisors who are almost, you know, too smart for their own good, and they, they weigh into arguments like that. Well, there's some element when I think America's crying out for serious leadership to yeah. fix things like and this. The important aspect here is when we're talking about locking down the border and securing the border and using the invasion clause to do that, people who come across illegally are going to be put back into Mexico. They're instructed to, if you know, if you have a, a, a can legally enter. You need to go to a legal port of entry and do it the right way. All of the trade that comes back and forth, that's still going to go on under an invasion uh, declaration. I mean, it could be stopped if, if we want to play hardball uh, and, and, or, and or Mexico doesn't want to uh, uh, you know, work with us on this. Uh, but the, the, the main thing here is that like, legal crossing and uh, 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 economic uh, trade is, does not end when you're doing an invasion clause. All it does is it, it degrades the ability of cartels to illegally uh, administer their massive networks of human trafficking and child sex trafficking and terrorists crossing the border and all the things that we know are happening, fentanyl, all of that. So like we can do both is the answer. Like uh, Abbott can do both. He can secure the border and keep it functional for the for uh, economic uh, and, and legal crossings. Okay. You know, I was staring at my phone because I realized I didn't write down uh, the correct um website name for you and want to make sure your organization citizensrenewingamerica.com yeah or uh, you can find our main website americarenewing.com americarenewing.com mm -hmm. i believe i said it incorrectly all the times you're on the show so americarenewing.com or citizensrenewingamerica.com because i really um I, I as i said i commend your organization and and what uh the expertise and knowledge that russ vote gained while working in the trump administration and you're really doing i mean this kind of and your capacity, your ability, because you worked on the Hill, being able to help people come up with a plan uh, and, and the correct formulation of the uh, concessions you were seeking or the House members were seeking before going with Kevin McCarthy. It was just a, um, it, it is, um, it was really, really very commendable. So. Well, I'm having fun. I've got a four and a half year old boy. So every day I go into work thinking that like, I am engaging in the battle that will shape his future. And it's so important. That, that we do this, and I see it all over the country, people standing up to the woke agenda at great personal risk. So we're not the only ones doing this. Like our fight is not actually anything if it's not for parents going to school boards and speaking out or people talking at their corporate HR meetings and saying this is, a, this is a biased training against, you know, this is racist training that you're uh, forcing on us. We don't have a fight if not for Americans all over the country standing up to this indoctrination and woke left. And so thankfully for that, they've created a window for Russ and I to now go weaponize that with elected officials and make sure that they understand what millions of Americans are seeing and what they're concerned about at their dinner tables, because it's not a budget uh, number. It's not 32 trillion. It's the left is trying to destroy us. They're just trying to brainwash our kids. They're trying to chop off their genitals. They want to like every way, shape or form. Like that's what parents are concerned about at dinner tables, not some regulatory issue with the EPA, although that's part of it. The, if we engage in this, we will win those battles too. But we have to fight the culture fight. It's the first and foremost everything everything we do when we get, wake up in the morning. That has to be it. And if we're not doing that, we're not actually in the fight at all. So that and that's Russ's vision, and I'm uh, agree with it 100%. So love that. Okay, so we tell our um, audience they people are able to ask questions. We have a microphone. Uh, my deal is on my new rule here, audience. If you want to ask questions, you just stand up, stand right up there, and speak right into the microphone. 
Um, if you'd like to ask a question, uh, right there, and while you are thinking about your question, um, I, when you said something a minute ago that really resonated, I meant to comment. You were saying how Republicans look at an issue when it's only 55%, like, oh, I don't think so. Democrats see some issues, a 30, or leftists, a 30% issue. And the, what I thought when you were speaking was this whole transgender craze. I mean, for most of human history, everyone understood this is you feel sorry for someone who's deluded enough to think that they are confused about their gender, but you didn't treat them as though it was a real thing. You didn't create gender ideology. You didn't infiltrate the schools and encourage them to have transgender grooming of young children. And that wasn't even a 30% issue, whatever you say, 10 years ago. And it is now the kind of issue that many conservatives say, well, I don't really want to talk about that because I get clobbered. And those are the kind of things. You talk about destruction of the family and destruction of your, your very, the whole rooting of your identity, the American identity. You have a, the, the craze is going on with transgenderism. And the left did, at least at this point, seem to succeed in getting that switched around. A lot of people don't want to talk about it. Yeah, right? it's the Mott and Bailey approach. They basically threw out the most ridiculous and crazy stuff and then they retreat back to the simplest form of that argument. So if we're talking about child gender uh, uh, modification, they, they will put out this craziest stuff knowing that it's a political loser in polling. But as soon as we start attacking it, it'll back up and say, uh, why are you opposed to gender identity? It's not about child gender. So they keep doing this. They keep moving in a forward and then they yes. re retreat back to the protected area. And then they move forward and they retreat back to the protected area. They want us to get out and attack it. And the problem is, is that we do it half Heartedly, if you actually go to war on it, go to battle and stay on it and do not let, take the spotlight off of them, we will win this battle. The problem is Republicans are generally uncomfortable to engage in these type of battles. They do the bare minimum. And so the left, it's like the frog in the uh, pot of water analogy. They yep. keep doing this on every single issue. Get us used to it. Push the, 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 the anchor way out there. And then it keeps moving the ball forward for them. They change the norm. They change the expectation. Yeah. Okay. So I'd love to have questions. Wade knows everything about Washington. No. I'm just kidding. He actually does, though, know many, many issues very, very well. So anything you want to talk about is great with me. Okay. Just so we're not having a camera on you. So um, my question is, uh, how do we win getting the pornography out of the schools? I've been told to go with the obscenity exemption. But now I'm hearing that's not it. It's unsuitable and inappropriate that we go that route and go after their licenses. So tell us, how do we wage this war and how do we win? So we literally, I think two days ago, just put out a document on this uh, from Adam Kandub, who is a law professor, I think, in Michigan. I, I should know this because he's one of our fellows. I know him very well. I always forget the specifics of where he teaches. But he knows these type of issues. And we worked with uh, another uh, person who's really smart, another lawyer, knows a lot about this. And you're going to see a lot of pushback. I've seen this from Republicans, Republican uh, school boards that, that, that these violate free speech codes. That's all bogus. And I'll try to get this information to you to get it out to them. But there are technical and legal ways to punch through all of these claims that you can't use obscenity. You can. I mean, it's, it's also it's very technical. But at the root of it, it's also very simple. We fund curriculum. These are public schools. There is a compelling governmental interest to not teach the stuff. I mean, no one would argue, for instance, that if you were to roll in a TV set, like they did when we were all in school age, I don't know if they still do that, uh, if they roll and they put on hardcore pornography and played it for eight hours, that that would be acceptable and legal. No one would argue that. But all of this obscenity is, and frankly, pornography is in this, these materials, and so they're trying to defend it. There's no First Amendment power. First of all, there's lots of court cases on this. So teachers, when they are speaking on behalf of the state in the classroom, do not have First Amendment protections. Uh, they have to adhere to the interests of the state and what the state demands. That, that is, so it, this argument that teachers have a First Amendment right is just bogus. It's not true. States have an inherent authority to dictate curriculum. They can, but we, I, I'm not ver well versed enough on this. I'm not a lawyer. I know a lot of legal issues very well because I've been dealing with these things for so long. But I'm not a lawyer and I can't answer this on a, a super technical basis other than to say that on our website, uh, Center for Renew uh, AmericaRenewing.com, uh, uh, which is our website for Center for Renewing America. Uh, we have a new primer on this that talks through four things that states can do to go after pornography in schools. And then we're also working on model legislation that will mirror this that states and school boards should implement to go, go after it. And this is the right fight. So if you're concerned about this, this is exactly the type of fight that we have to be engaged in. It's not per se about property taxes, although it is. I mean, that's still an important issue. 
this is the fight. If we fight these fights, we will win the property tax fights. We will win the regulatory fights. We will win the state budget fights. But we have to capture these institutions. And remember that it's the school boards. These people will later on become city council members and then congressmen for the left. We have to start attacking them before they get enough power to become uh, the power that they are, the Hakeem Jeffries and, and whatnot. So. Okay, we didn't even talk about him today. I have a few sh things to say about him, but you know, we have a time warp problem in this studio because somehow it is four o'clock. I don't know how that oh, happened yeah. because I really thought it was like 10 of, and I'm so sorry, but we really do have to keep true, especially um, with our guest today. We need to keep true to our time schedule. So, first of all, Wade Miller, you are a fountain of knowledge. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank Thanks you for, for being here. On. Appreciate it. And for everyone else, thank you so very much for tuning in to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Our website is americacanwetalk.org. Love to have you tune in every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. Talk. Truth about America. Can you